Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Still on lockdown, this is Ken Levine with Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for joining me. This is part two of my interview with TV critic Alan Sepinwall. If you missed part one after you listen to this one, go back and check that one out. Alan Sepinwall has reviewed television for 25 years. For 14 years, he was a columnist for the New Jersey Ledger, and currently he is the chief TV critic for Rolling Stone magazine. So he's cool, in other words. He's also very candid, very interesting. You really get a sense of the landscape of television and how hard it is to be a TV critic when there is so much product out there. So here is part two, my interview with Alan Sepinwall this week on Hollywood and Levine. Has a showrunner or an actor ever come after you after a bad review? Oh, yes. Many times. Not <laughs> Rarely in person. There have been a couple of incidents. One, when there was a set visit to a show uh, that, I had written, uh, that I had not only written a negative review of, but I had been recapping. Back in the days when I would still do recaps of shows I didn't like because TV <laughs> was less busy back then. Uh, so one of these shows was on, and then there was a set visit for the for the Television Critics Association, and we all went there, and the showrunner, like, sees me, and we're all sitting around a table talking to him, and I somehow wound up sitting right next to him, and he does the entire, like, impromptu press conference staring at me the entire time, just, like, you have staring daggers, and afterwards he, like, gives me a, a power handshake uh, and was not pleased, clearly not happy at all with me. There have been a couple other times where showrunners have, like, sicked their fans on me on social media or said unkind things. But, you know, I, I try the best I can to write about the work and to not make it personal and to not be mean. Uh, and I'm sure, I feel like I've gotten better at that over the years. But sometimes, so like, if I've said something negative about your show that you've poured your blood, sweat, and tears into, you're just not going to be happy with me, and I get that. And, and it must be kind of tricky because on the one end, you need to be objective, but on the other, you also need to establish relationships with these showrunners because one of the things I noticed that you do very well is you'll interview these guys and yeah. you'll get inside information and really into their heads. And in order to maintain that line of communication they can't hate you it's it's tricky and there's and some of the people i've talked about just a moment ago were people i had very good relationships with when i was saying positive things about their show and suddenly it was like a, a switch got flipped and i became public enemy number one the only thing i can do is i can express my honest opinion and if that costs me relationships 
it costs me relationships. Um, and uh, you know, the flip side is sometimes like people I get along with very well in person, I don't really love their shows. And some people who are just absolutely like, garbage human beings make great television. Uh, and that's, thank you. Yeah. And then I have to, <laughs> I praise the show. I, you know, I, and what, what else can I do regardless of what they've said to me or just how I know that they are as a human being, the show is great. And so you say that and you deal with the other stuff uh, another time. More in a moment, but first a word about every plate. Well, for me, this is now week 18 of lockdown And it figures I'll be in self-quarantine quite a few more weeks after that. And we've been through every recipe in the book. We have tried curbside takeout. We have used Postmates. We have also tried every home-delivered meal kit. And I'm here to tell you, and it's a large sample size now after 18 weeks, I have found the best, and that is every plate. It is a meal kit that goes right to your door, no contact. You just pick it up and put it together in 30 minutes, and the food is delicious. It's good, it's healthy, and it's cheaper. How much cheaper, you say? Well, try this, 58% cheaper than the normal price of the other meal kits. 58 percent. Wow. Takes 30 minutes to put the whole thing together. And if you go to pick up takeout, it's going to take you 30 minutes. And I have a great introductory offer. Are you ready? You can get three weeks of every plate meals for only $2.99 per meal. I mean, you can't get a coffee at Starbucks for two ninety nine as a full meal, $2.99. All you got to do is go to everyplate.com and enter the code HOLLYWOOD3. Once again, that is everyplate.com and enter the code HOLLYWOOD3, $2.99. Of course, it's a great deal. Do it. Well... I want to talk for a couple of minutes here about the TCA conventions. Sure. Which aren't going on this year, but twice a year, all of the TV critics from around the country would converge on Los Angeles, and you would have set visits, as you mentioned, and there would be these sessions. Each new show would have a a session. It was like a regular convention kind of thing. And I've been on the other side of it on, on yes. three occasions. And it's really weird because the showrunners and maybe the one or two stars come up and they sit down and spend an hour telling you how great their show is, <laughs> how innovative their show is. And for you guys, it's like, oh, my God, this is the this is the. 85th session like this we have had this week. <laughs> yeah. And and we're looking out at this sea of disinterested faces or people just going on their computer. And you know they're checking their email. You know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it it's always rough for us. But putting myself in your place, I can't imagine having to sit 
through all of these. There was probably, you probably sat through a session for indebted that you just don't remember. It's entire, it is entirely possible that that happened, Ken. <laughs> um, I will say, like, my use of TCA evolved over the years. Originally, the, the, the convention was originally set up, I think, back in the 70s, probably. Uh, the idea being basically that uh, newspaper writers would all go out to California and they would bank all these stories. They would do interviews and they would go to these press conferences and they would squirrel away the quotes and then over the ensuing months, as the shows started to debut, you would write stories based on these sessions and based on the interviews you did after. And that has largely gone away thanks to you know, the Internet and especially thanks to Twitter, because everything that's said on, on those stages immediately gets tweeted out to the world and it's old news within five minutes. So you, you can't really do that anymore. And so one of the things that I, I've started to really try to do with TCA when I go is to use it less to get the quotes than to get a sense of whether my instincts about different shows are right. Um, so the best example of that I can give you is, and this is going back a while now, there was a year when NBC and Fox both had uh, serialized kidnapping dramas debuting in, in the same fall. Uh, NBC's, I think, was called Kidnapped, and Fox's was called Vanished. And the idea was you follow the same case over the entire season and then it resolves and you move on and there's a new case or something like that. And I watched both of the pilots. I thought they were kind of interesting, but I wondered, all right, how are you going to sustain this over a season or over multiple seasons? And the showrunner for Kidnapped comes in and we ask him those skeptical questions. And he has great answers. He's ready for everything. He's like, well, if this happens, we'll do this. And if this happens, we'll do that. And if that happens, we'll do this other thing. But sort of he laid out a very clear and cohesive plan for how the show would function over one season, over three seasons, over five seasons. And then the guy for Vanished comes in and he just looks shell-shocked from the word jump and does not have, no, well, well, I kind of know what we're doing in episode three, but beyond that, I guess we'll figure it out. And he, he hemmed and he hawed and I knew right away, all right, one of these shows knows what's it, what it's doing and one of them doesn't. And ultimately both of them got canceled but I wound up watching all of Kidnapped and felt like, all right, this is a pretty good show. And if it had been renewed, I understand how it would have worked. And so it's, it's really useful to help inform when I then write the reviews or which shows I'm going to keep covering to see who has their act together and who doesn't. And also sometimes if, there's, if, I, if I'm on the fence about a show and there's certain things I like and certain things I don't, and the showrunner comes on stage and all the things that they're talking about are the things I didn't like, that's a trouble sign. Whereas if they come on stage and they say, and they say themselves, oh, I know that part doesn't work, but we're going to fix it. That's usually a very good sign. So that's how I try to use TCA whenever possible, as opposed to just, you know, regurgitating people talking about how we're like a family, or we like to think that we're doing a Broadway show every, for a half an hour every week, you know, all, all the, the usual stock quotes, things like that. I guess you weren't there if you said you you didn't review the first year of Almost Perfect. But the first year of Almost Perfect, we had that session. And it was me and my partners, David Isaacs and Robin Schiff, and the two stars of the show, Nancy Travis and Kevin Kilner. And again, looking out at this sea of boring faces... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and we're talking about the show and the the usual stuff and uh, they're asking questions and 
somebody said, um, so like, I don't know why they asked this question, but they said, so what jobs did you have before being an actor or while you were trying to make it as an actor? And Kevin Kilner said that he worked in a bank and he dealt with certain companies like Zaki Farms, I think, or one of those. <laughs> and he says, and I, and I would have to go to their headquarters and meet them and deal with their books, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, do you, do you ever know how they, they slaughter chickens? Do you, do you ever know that? <laughs> okay. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, Kevin, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, everyone perked up. Everyone perked up. And we had this five-minute discussion on how you slaughtered chickens. And it was probably the highlight of the convention for these people. They were just, I think, so excited to talk about something else that slaughtering chickens became a, a big topic. Well, I... Having been to lots of sessions that have gone that way, I you, your instincts on that are exactly right. You sort of, it's when th- when unexpected things happen, that's exciting. And I can t- I can probably guess knowing the year and the question, like two or three people who mo- were most likely to have asked it. But I think the reason they did it is because a lot of people there are just they're looking for stories, and so in that case, they're looking to write a feature story either about Kevin and Nancy or just in general, but jobs that actors had before they hit it big. And so they filled up their notebook with all these quotes, and I'm sure that they went up leading with the chicken-killing anecdote. <laughs> Sometimes you go into those things. It fortunately hasn't happened to us, but I have stood in the back watching enough of these other sessions that the critics will pick on them for something, yeah. You know, why did you do this? Or why didn't you actually hire a Puerto Rican actor or something like that? And boy, I know when that happens, that's a show that's going to get panned. That that there are just there's sharks and they smell blood in the water. Yep, yeah. The the pylon is a very familiar kind of TCA session. There those can be memorable, they can also get kind of ugly. <laughs> do you enjoy going to them um not as much as i used to just because i'm older and i have a family now and it's hard to be away from them for that long so these days when i go i never do the full tour which can be two to three weeks at a stretch i will come in for you know maybe four or five days and i have to pick the right days when the most interesting things are going to happen um but I, I remember I would do, you know, I started doing this when I was 22 and I would, I was there for three weeks all day, every day, uh, going to every single session. And lots of parties though. Lots night. of parties. Yeah, no, it's lots of parties. Yeah, no, it's not, certainly it beats working in a warehouse or lots of other things that, that I could be doing now or could have been doing even back in the mid nineties. But it's, it's a, it's a weird experience. And when you go to those parties, which are all, which are meant to be working parties. So they're only vaguely parties. It's a strange experience. And you'll come out of those with some weird stories. Right. And uh, having eaten a lot of shrimp, eating a lot of, (laughs) you eat a lot of eggs in the morning and a lot of shrimp at night. (laughs) Well, you also have the TCA awards. Yes. And I'm going to use this to, to share an anecdote. One year, uh, Cheers received the Lifetime Award 
Thank you, by the way, for that. Yep. And we were the happy Charles to do Brothers it. and Jimmy were out of town, and they asked if I would accept the award. And since I live like 10 minutes from the Beverly Hilton Hotel where they do it, it's like, sure. Yep. So, you know, I'm there and there's all the casts of these various shows like Breaking Bad and Homeland. And they were, you know, Homeland was right up front. And I've always had this major crush on Claire Danes. Okay. Okay. So it's time for the Cheers Award. And by and large... People are giving these acceptance speeches and they're terrible and the, you know, opening <laughs> monologue was terrible and all. And so I give up and I had a prepared speech and, and I killed with it. Okay. It got huge laughs and out of the I can corner- confirm this you are not, you are not over-exaggerating. That was a very successful speech. Thank you. Out of the corner of my eye, I see that down front, Claire Danes is laughing. And when I walked off the stage, all I could think of was I made Claire Danes laugh. Okay, <laughs> The other thousand people in the room, it didn't matter to me. But as I'm walking back to my seat, I thought to myself, you know, I'm still 13 years old. <laughs> it is still about making the pretty girl laugh. Wow. So that was my big moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy that we could have made that happen for you, Ken. So that, that, that warms my heart. This is certainly an age, a golden age for dramas. What about comedies? I th- there are still a lot of very good comedies, but there's a, a, most of the ones that I like the best are ones that I'm sure you would be very reluctant to call comedies. So there's a lot of like half hour shows that are, that can be kind of funny, but are more dramatic or at least more interesting when they're dramatic. There are still some very explosively funny shows like Brockmire, like what we do in the shadows, a handful of others. Uh, But definitely the more interesting stuff these days is happening on the serious side of things, I think. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Where do you think the industry is heading? I mean, first of all, none of us know in the short term with this pandemic, but just kind of long-term where do you see things going in another three, four years? I don't know. Like, even before the pandemic, I the thing that was really troubling me was how much of this is sustainable? How much of the just sheer amount of programming, of shows, of services, of different, like, ways you can watch TV and places you can watch TV, how much of this is really sustainable? And is this just a huge bubble that is going to collapse and put a whole lot of people out of work? Uh, and so, but I've been thinking that for like maybe seven years now, and it hasn't happened yet. So I don't know. It seems to me like you've, you've definitely seen some retrenchment where a number of like cable channels that were in the scripted business have gotten out of it. Uh, but on the other hand, there's more streamers than ever. Quibi launched in the middle of the pandemic, and God knows how long Quibi will be with us. But I just wonder, like, if at some point the amount of programming is going to have to go down because nobody can watch all of this and nobody ultimately can afford to make all of it. Yeah, a few years ago when it was pretty much just Netflix and then Netflix and Hulu. And one of the advantages of Netflix was, okay, you're paying your $12.95 a month, but you get a chance to see everything, okay? You can see Friends, you can see vintage shows, you can see movies, you can see new programming. But now 
that you have Disney Plus and Apple and Amazon and Warner Brothers and everybody's coming out with their own streaming service. And especially as a result of the pandemic, where everybody has taken a huge hit financially, you figure, I'm not going to subscribe to four of these things. Yeah. So it seems like some of them are going to merge or some of them are going to just die. Well, I mean, what's basically happened right now is that all the streamers are your new cable bundle. You, If you want to be able to see everything, you've got to, like, subscribe to seven, eight, nine things. It's ridiculous. We're talking today. HBO Max just launched today. Uh, and, I, you know, I barely had any time to scratch the surface of all of the things that they have. But it went from, like you said, if you had a Netflix subscription and you maybe watch some stuff on Hulu, you know, the network things, you were getting almost everything that was interesting on TV. And now that's not the case. And so you either have to shell out for a lot of things or you just have to accept the fact that I'm only getting at a small fraction of what's out there. Yeah. And uh, the networks, you know, every year it seems they're shares just continue to dwindle and dwindle and i'm wondering if we're gonna reach a point where each network has their own streaming service but it's gonna flip where the new material is gonna come to the streaming services first and then after it's been on for a a week or two on peacock or whatever then it's gonna go to nbc broadcast I would not be surprised at all. I mean, I think we're going to see some of that just during the pandemic where CBS is probably going to wind up airing some of the CBS All Access shows on the broadcast network just for lack of material. But I can definitely see that becoming a regular thing even in a less fraught time than now. Are there shows that are on one of these streaming services that you just champion because you figure, okay, this is going to get lost but I, I just love this show. I love The Good Fight. Yes. I love The Good Fight. And mm-hmm. it's on CBS All Access. I don't know how many people have CBS All Access. And when The Good Fight goes away, I'm probably going to drop CBS All Access. I don't give a shit about <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> so yeah. are, are there shows like that that are on Stars or Epic or Logo or one of these things that, that you're going, hey, people – you got to watch this show. The the most prominent one of those in recent years was Brockmire, where, like, I recapped that show for multiple seasons, even though there wasn't a whole lot, like, I couldn't really dig deep into it because it was a half-hour comedy, and very few people were reading those recaps because it was a low-rated show, but I just liked the idea. I, I would hear sometimes people would say, well, if Alan is recapping a show, that's interesting enough for me to take a look at it. Like, it's one thing for me to give a show a rave review, but for whatever reason, the idea that I would write about it weekly is me, like, throwing an extra bit of muscle behind it. And so that was a show on IFC, which not a lot of people necessarily watch, even if they have it in their cable package. And I thought, right, this is a real gem, and it touches on a lot of different things I love, including baseball, including comedy, including some really dramatic stuff. So if I write about it every week, maybe I can, in some very small way, help that stick around. Uh, and so that's, I guess, why I tried to do that. Now, I loved Brock Meyer at the start. And, of course, also being a baseball announcer, yeah. I mean, this was just right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> and I loved the show up until this final season. And you did not I, like the science fiction stuff? No, I appreciate that they took this 
you know, wild swing for the fences and went for this futuristic world. But, uh, you know, it's so fraught when you have to suddenly create an entire world. Yeah. I liked him in the real world. I, much I get that. That's fair. That's entirely fair. Okay, so in addition to writing reviews, since, you know, that only takes 22 hours a day, <laughs> you also write books. And yes. your latest one is called The Soprano Sessions. Tell me yep. about that. All right, so that's one. I was at the Star Ledger, which was the newspaper at the end of Tony Soprano's driveway for the entire run of that show, even before it debuted. And so me and Matt Zeller sites, we were kind of embedded with the show for the entire run. I kind of, I like to compare it to being the rock critic at the Liverpool newspaper right before the Beatles blew up. You know, just really right place, right time. So we'd written a lot about it back then. We had good relationships with people. Uh, and we always like coming together to write books. Like when we did our, our TV, the book, where we ranked the 100 best shows of all time. And so we realized the 20th anniversary of the show was coming up last year, and it would be a good excuse to both celebrate that, but also to get back together. And so we did something where we recapped every episode, really long essays going more in depth than I think either of us have gone on any show ever, including, you know, something like Mad Men. And we did a new series of interviews with David Chase, the creator, where we talked about everything from the, the conception of the show all the way through to the final scene. So it's really it's some of the best writing either of us has ever done. And it's nice to be able to take the time with something like that as opposed to just really trying to turn around a recap or a review because you've got like X number of things you have to do in a week for your publication. Well, again, it's available wherever books are sold, which is not many places. <laughs> <laughs> the Soprano Sessions. And uh, I guess my my final question, I'm, I'm just going to kind of lobby for this because I sure. know from time to time you guys put together your top 100 all-time greatest sitcoms and greatest dramas and that type of thing. And, and I ask you to look at Big Wave Dave's one more time. <laughs> I will. I absolutely okay? will, Ken. Thank you. You know, I, I mean, it doesn't have to be number one or number two. Okay, but, but uh, you know, I, I, you know, six, number well, six I, at least. I will say this: my daughter and I, like during the pandemic, even before it, like with each of my kids, we like to pick an old show and we will watch it together all the way through. And so, my daughter and I, our recent project was Cheers, and in that case, we didn't do everything because there's just too many episodes. But we would do about a dozen episodes per season, and we did all the Bar Wars episodes and most, I think, of the other ones that the two of you wrote. Uh, and she loved it so much, and it was so gratifying that the show that I had loved when I was her age held up that well. Uh, so that was great. Now we've moved on to Frasier. So I just want to say on her behalf and on mine, thank you for being a part of that. Well, my pleasure, and thank you for joining me today. This was really great. Anytime, Ken. And that will do it. Our thanks to Alan Sepinwall, who is the chief. TV critic for Rolling Stone magazine. Hope to get on the cover one day, and Alan might just be my contact. As always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister Butler for their help on this podcast, and Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Bruce and Jason Miller. Want to get in touch with me? I will write you back. Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. 
That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also, I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If you would subscribe, I would appreciate it. I'd also like a five-star review. You've heard that before. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Be safe, wear a mask, and I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine. 